All right, if you'll turn your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter number 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. My goal is for us to finish this chapter this evening. We're at a place in 1 Peter where he is going to begin to talk about how we deal with uh, government and deal with those that are in authority over us. And um, so we're going to begin in verse number 13 of 1 Peter chapter number 2, verse number 13. Peter writes this under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's writing to the Jews that are scattered abroad. He says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be the king as supreme or as under governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God. Look what he says there, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward. But this is thanksworthy, if any man of uh, conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully for what glory is it if when ye be buffeted that uh, for your faults ye shall take it patiently but if when you do well and suffer for it you take it patiently that this is acceptable with god all right peter is the author again and peter is writing to the jews now it's important a lot of what we looked at even last week it was important to see this because he used a lot of scripture in the old testament uh in the first few verses of first peter chapter two he used scripture in the old testament because the jews understood the old testament they understood the law they understood uh what what was happening with the law now he is saying to them and in, in uh, uh first few verses of first peter that no longer no in verse nine that we're a royal priesthood no longer do we have to go to a priest to have our sins uh, uh confessed no longer do we have to depend upon a, a priest to go into the holy of holies and confess our sins we can go to god we have access to the father through jesus christ and this was, this was something that those that have, had grown up and studied the Old Testament, this was new to them. They can, go, they can go directly to God. They can go directly to the throne of grace and their needs and their petitions would be heard by God, not having to go through a man. You know, the Old Testament tells us that they would tie bells around the bottom of that uh, priest, his garments. So if he died, you would hear a, a, a thud because he'd fall over and the bells would stop ringing. He wasn't walking. They knew he was dead. So they'd pull him out by a rope that was, was tied to him. Could you imagine going and having fear that that priest who is supposed to go to God on your behalf was sinful? And because he was sinful, he wasn't able to, to make a sacrifice and therefore your sins weren't forgiven. That, that's, that's living in fear. I mean, I'd have to depend upon somebody else to be what they're supposed to be in order for the sacrifice to be made. No longer does man have to depend upon a priest to go make a sacrifice. This was wonderful news to a, a believer, especially one that grew up studying the Old Testament. And so the, the priesthood of the believer, that is so valuable uh, for this, this group of believers here and encouraging to them. And then we, we find he's 
he's speaking to the Jews and they're scattered abroad all through Asia Minor and they're scattered because of their faith in Christ. They're enduring persecution. They're going through trials. They're being tested because of their faith in Christ. And so because of that, they're scattered. You know, and God, God is using, and Peter is, is, is helping us to deal with suffering or to deal with trials. And he always comes back to the purpose of dealing correctly with trials is so that others see Christ in us. That's the whole purpose of it. That's what Peter keeps pointing back to. You're going to endure suffering. You're going to endure persecution. But when you do, when you do, endure it and, and, and deal with it correctly and handle it correctly so that others see Christ in you. They see how you deal with things. And in verse number one of chapter number two, he says to lay aside all malice and guile. Why does he say to lay that aside? So that we don't respond in the flesh. When, when persecution comes or trials come, you want to respond in your flesh and deal with it in your flesh. And when you deal with it in your flesh, what others see is your flesh. They don't see Christ. The believer is supposed to handle every situation in their life correctly so that when others evaluate you, when others see you, and we're going to see some of this this evening, they see Christ in you. The question is, would be this, if others can't see Christ in a believer, where are they going to see Christ? If we're a follower of Christ, a believer, and we're not responding so that others see Christ in us, where are they going to see him? They ought to see him working in us. They ought to see him working in our life. And so Paul or Peter says, you've got to lay these things aside so that when we respond correctly, they see Christ in us. And he goes on in verse number nine, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. What he's trying to get them to understand is you're different. You're different. You're no longer the same as you were when you were lost. You're different. And because you're different, you behave different. Because you're different, your life matters. There's a different purpose. And then in verse number 10 and verse number 11, he, he brings it together again about living as strangers and pilgrims, abstaining from fleshly lust and living a, a life pleasing the Lord. If you read through this, you come to verse number 13, you wonder why did he just go from like all of a sudden out of nowhere, he goes to dealing with those that are in authority over us. And this is why it's so important. The Christians that he's writing to, they are being scattered. They're being persecuted by the government because of their faith in Christ. And Peter's addressing that. He's not wanting them to feel sorry for themselves because they're going through persecution. He's wanting them to handle themselves correctly in that persecution. He's wanting them to deal correctly. He's wanting them to deal with every relationship that they have. In chapter number three, when we're going to begin studying next week, he starts dealing with husbands and wives. Every relationship that we have, Peter is going to deal with it, how we respond, how we act, how we, how we handle ourselves when there is disagreement or persecution or testing in our life. 
Chapter number three, um, we'll not dive into it this evening, but you'll see when he, he uses the word likewise, you wives be, sub, uh, be in subjection to your own husbands that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversion of the conversation of the wives. And so it's a behave yourself correctly so others respond to how you're behaving. So in verse number 13, he says this, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. It's difficult to submit yourself to ordinance of man that you don't agree with, isn't it? I, uh, my son got his, got his permit today. My wife took him this morning and he passed and so we're leaving here today, it was about four o'clock or so and, and I said, uh, girls got in the car and I got in the car and he comes and he's got this big grin on his face. I know what he's thinking, I know what he's thinking. And so I just got out of the driver's seat and I got in the passenger seat and he couldn't believe it. He got in and we're driving. He prayed. His sisters prayed the whole time. <laughs> Seriously, Mackenzie had her looking out the window. She prayed the entire time out loud. <laughs> and I said to him, now there's a stop sign here, slow down here, speed up here. He, um, he had that seat. I mean, he looked like a an elderly lady on a Sunday afternoon driving. <laughs> he had that seat pulled up and he was doing exactly what, 10 miles below the speed limit. The problem is that someplace the speed limit was 25. I said, but you gotta pick it up, come on. There's a elderly lady behind you getting upset with you. <laughs> <laughs> what I was teaching him was as he was driving home, obeying every ordinance. Now, as I'm telling him, all right, do this, I can hear my wife saying, that's a stop sign, you were supposed to stop. That's what she says to me. That's a stop sign. You were supposed to stop. If she's following me, she calls me. She says, you know, you didn't really stop at that stop sign. I said, how do you know these things? I'm right behind you. You're going a little bit, she'll call. You're going a little bit too fast. How do you know this? I'm behind you doing the speed limit and you're way ahead of me now. We don't like to follow every law that, that, that's out there. What Peter says to these Jewish believers, he's saying this, every ordinance that's there, you've got to learn to follow. Now, there were some that were being persecuted by those that were making these laws. It's difficult to like something someone's doing when you don't like the someone that's doing it, right? But Peter, even in this situation, he says, submit. That's a difficult word, submit. Like, like, whether you like it or not, you've got to submit to this. It's not for you to decide because of who's doing it, whether you're going to do it or not. It's for you to just simply do it. And then he says, submit, and then look why. Why he says to do it. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. He brings this always back to the Lord. How can we give the gospel to a lost and dying world if we're not willing to live the, the, the rules that the world has placed. Now, Peter also, I, re, I remind you that Peter in Acts chapter five, he, uh, he says this, that we, we ought to obey God rather than man. He was talking to the priest there. 
What he's not saying is this, if the law violates the word of God, the reason why they were being persecuted is because they were standing for Christ, not submitting to the, to the, to the uh, customs and the things of that time. So he's not saying if the law tells you to go against God's word, you've got to obey the law. Peter's already dealt with that in Acts where he says you've got to obey God. But what he's saying is if the laws do not violate the word of God, you've got to obey the laws. That means this, every single Christian ought to pay their fair share or what's expected of them in taxes. That's a tough time of year for that, right? How many of you got your taxes done? A couple of you. Whatever the law, unless it's violating God's word, we're to obey it. We're to do it. And we're to do it, the Bible says, for the Lord's sake. And he's going to build upon that for the Lord's sake here in this passage of scripture. He says, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors, just simply those that you're obeying it to, as into them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. And then look in verse number 15. Verse number 15, he says this, for so is the will of God. How many of you want to be in God's will? I know I do. When you see verses like, for so is the will of God, it ought to cause you to want to know what is the will of God. I want to be in the will of God. What Peter is writing to us here in chapter number two is he's helping the believer be right with God. He's helping the believer to stay at a place where he's in communion with God. He's wanting the believer to live at a place where he's accomplishing God's will for his life. See, we're pilgrims, we're, we're strangers in, verse, in, in, in uh, uh, verse number 11 here. We're pilgrims and we're strangers to this world. What does that mean? Not just the fact that there were Jews living in Asia Minor scattered abroad, but the fact that there were believers now in heaven was their home and they weren't, they weren't uh, 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 here on this earth to, to, to live in and to enjoy the, the things of this earth. They are ambassadors for Christ, for heaven. And so he's trying to get them to understand that you're, you're, you're time here on this earth is got to be lived serving God. We must as Christians desire to know the will of God for our life. In verse number 15, for so is the will of God. And look, and, and look what he says, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. God's will for our lives is to live in such a way where what he says here is put to silence ignorant, ignorant men. We're to live in such a way where others see the testimony of Christ in us. A lot of people seek, what is God's will for my life? What, what, is, what does God want? Peter says right here what God desires for you is when foolish people talk, they see how you live and there's no accusation they can make. Now they're being persecuted for their faith in Christ. There's going to be some that just mock and persecute the name of Christ. I had a discussion with someone just, just this week on, on um, creation. And the world would have you to believe if you believe in creation that God created in six literal days, you're foolish. 
even though there's no facts or any, anything that they're using to, to come up with their theory. And so it's not that we are to live our life just constantly arguing, constantly fighting. We're supposed to live our life in that the decisions that we're making, how we're living, how we're communicating, how we treat people, how we do business, how we obey the laws, how we respect those that are in authority over us. We're supposed to live in such a way when people see how we live, there's no accusation they can make. That's a pretty sobering thought. Given any opportunity to cheat in life, I'm supposed to live in such a way where I turn from that. Any opportunity to steal or any opportunity to disobey, I'm supposed to follow the rules. How many of you, I won't ask you to raise your hand, how many of you at times it's difficult to follow the rules? How many of you, you have at times said, this is a dumb rule, this one doesn't make sense. And if I can surmise in my mind that this one doesn't make sense and it's not needful, then I can justify not doing it. It's a dumb rule. Peter says, you can't live your life that way. God's will for your life is to live following the rules, following what those that have put over, to, uh, over you have asked you to do so that when those that would mock you for what you believe, for those that would persecute you for what you believe, for those that would make accusations against what you believe, they're silenced. They're silenced. Because you're going to live a holy life, a peaceful life. You're going to live a life in such a way where there's not conflict and not frustration and not turmoil. And when they see how you're living, it's going to silence them. They can't have any accusation. Now, we looked, we looked Sunday at um, a verse that uh, uh, Paul wrote about, about abstaining from all appearance of evil. And this would be a, a great verse to go along with this. We're supposed to live our life in such a way where no one could speak evil of our actions. And that's what Peter is, is trying to get us to understand. Our lives should be lived where nothing evil could be said. And in that happening, silencing those that are ignorant of foolish men. Verse number 16, the Bible says, as free. And this is an important verse for the believer as well. As free. How are we free? What's he speaking of there? They were Jews, living what? Under the law. They're saved, they're no longer living under the law. They're free. What made them free? Christ, Christ made them free. But he says, so as free, so we're free and not using your liberty. You know what, a Christian should never use their liberty as a reason to sin. A Christian should never use their liberty as a reason. Well, you know, God's going to forgive me or God has forgiven me, so it's okay. We're not bound to the law anymore. I've heard people say, you know, we don't live, we don't live under the law anymore. But you know, those, those commandments are still there for us to live. Those aren't there for us to live to obtain salvation. We obtain salvation through Jesus Christ, but we ought to live so others see Christ in us. I shouldn't be in violation of, of the word of God because I have liberty now because I'm saved. 
Well, I'm saved, so it really doesn't matter. I'm going to heaven. All that matters is that one day when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. Yeah, you're right. If you're saved, one day when you die, you're going to go to heaven. But what type of life are you living right now? You should be living a life right now here upon this earth that's pointing other people so they too can enjoy heaven as their home for all of eternity. They too can enjoy what you have in Christ. It's not giving us liberty to behave like the world. It's not giving us liberty to sin because Christ is going to forgive us. No, we, we don't have liberty to, to behave in a, in, a, in a harmful way. And in verse number 16, maliciousness, that means intending to do harm or evil. Nowhere does a Christian have liberty to do wrong to someone because they've wronged you. The government here put rules and he says you've got to follow those rules. And you can't, even if they treat you wrong, that does not give you a reason to respond wrong. Just because you're saved, it doesn't mean, well, I'm going to do this and then ask God to forgive me. Being saved now doesn't give us the liberty to sin. We're free, yes, but, but we're, we don't have liberty now to, to do harm or evil here in verse number 16. And he says this, but as servants of God. Again, he points everything back to God again. Why? Why, why can't I live the life I desire to live? Because I'm a servant of God. I don't belong to myself anymore. My life, I was bought with a price. I belong to Jesus. I don't have the liberty to make the decisions that I want to make anymore. When I got saved, I now have given my life over to Jesus Christ. He decides what I'm going to do with my life. He decides how I'm going to live. He decides what I am going to do with my life. He decides where I go and, and, and I, how I use the resources he's blessed me with. My life is not mine any longer. It belongs to Christ. That's what Peter is trying to get to the believer here. You can't behave however you want to behave. You can't respond to those that even have hurt you because you aren't representing yourself anymore. You represent God. The world needs to see how a servant of God, how a child of God behaves. And a child of God has to behave different then the world behaves. I can't look to try to get out of something. I can't look to, 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 to reasons why I shouldn't follow the law. I just simply must submit to those that have the rule over me so that God is seen. I can't make decisions based on what I want. That's why we aren't going to live uh, 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 earthly lust and go after what, what my flesh desires. My life isn't about what I desire anymore. My life now is spent wanting what God desires. I ought to be seeking God's will for my life, not seeking what satisfies me in this life. Christian, I think that's where a lot of us go wrong. The filter isn't what does God desire? How does this make God look? How do others view God through this decision and through my life? Oftentimes, the filter we use first is how does this make me feel? How am I going to respond? 
how do I like what just happened to me? Peter is talking to believers that are going through persecution. He's talking to believers that are going through suffering. The entire book here in 1 Peter is about suffering. The journey of suffering. Every Christian is going to suffer. Every Christian is going to go through persecution. Every Christian is going to be wronged. Every Christian is going to go through a trial. When you get saved, you're signing up for trials in your life. When you get saved, you're signing up for suffering. Peter is a perfect example. Peter, once he became a follower of Christ, he began to go through sufferings in problems and in trials that he never would have went through if he just would have stayed a fisherman. Peter's going through them now. Peter's not the immature uh, uh, apostle that you find in the Gospels. Peter now is the mature one that's now gone through. He's seasoned now. He's gone through trials. He's gone through persecution. And he is now on the other side of those. And he's trying to help those that are babes in Christ, those that are going through the persecution. He's trying to help them mature. And what Peter is constantly doing in 1 Peter is he's causing the Christian to have to think about their decisions and make the right decision, endure that suffering so that you can mature as a believer. Peter's desiring that the church, the believers are mature. And how you deal with things, always listening and always realizing that it always comes back to God. Do you know if you, your children at school, Brother Black will probably tell you this, you can tell a lot about parents or parenting or a home by just simply watching the kids, right? How many teachers and those that deal with kids, right? You know a lot about a home. You know what they're allowed to do and not allowed to do? Because they'll tell you. <laughs> you find out what they watch and what they don't watch because they tell you. They'll reveal how they treat authority because they'll treat you that way. You can tell a lot about how a home life is by just simply watching their children. But we've got to mature so we don't behave like children. And so he is causing the believer in real, helping the believer to realize that maturity, by maturing, you are representing your heavenly father. You're representing your home. So others view it and desire to be like it. I want to, I want to live a life to where someone sees what's happening in my home. And I'd like someone to say, well, I'd like to model that my home after that. Not, not, not because of a decision we've done, but because they see Christ in that decision. I want my children, I desire people to see Christ in my children. Not so that they say, boy, Jeremy and Michelle, they do a good job raising their kids. I want them to say, Christ is honored through their kids. That ought to be the desire of every believer. And so going on here, he says, so we're free. But as servants of God... And then he says in verse number 17, honor all men. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. You know, right in the middle of that verse there, he's got love the brotherhood and fear God. I believe this. It's impossible to honor if you don't have a proper fear of God. 
it's impossible to love if you don't have the proper fear of God. Valentine's Day just passed. When was that? Yesterday? Is that? I told my wife every day is Valentine's Day. I don't know why there's one that we have to set aside. You know? I love her every day. So it's hard to remember when that came. But she's not here tonight. That's why I said that. (laughs) The truth is this. There's a proper love I have for my wife because there's a proper fear I have for God. The better relationship and understanding I have who God is, the better I can love my wife. My relationship with God is what helps me have a better relationship with you. If I'm one of those that are constantly fighting, constantly not getting along, that is obvious proof I'm struggling in my relationship with God. A proper fear of God helps me to love correctly. I want to love my wife not because I'm afraid of what she would do if she found out. I want to love my wife because I want God's blessing on my life. I fear God. I don't want to just stay faithful to my wife uh, or I want to stay faithful to my wife because of I realize this. God knows everything. God knows all. I could try to keep something a secret from someone, a human being, but you know what I need to realize? God knows everything. There's no secrets with him. I might get away with something, a law that I break. I might cheat on taxes or, or steal or do something when, when nobody is noticing it, but what I must understand is God always notices it. And if my goal in life is just to do things and get away with it, and as long as I get away with it, then I'm good, what I'm I'm not realizing is this. I'm not fearing God like I should. I need to fear God. And in fearing God, I then, I can honor all men if I fear God. Why am I honoring them? Just to their face? See, if I have the proper fear of God, I won't just be nice to you to your face. I'll actually do it when you're not around as well. I can't take Steve and and just be nice to him and when he leaves, talk to someone else about him and, 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 and not be kind to him and not honor him if I have a proper relationship with God. See, I can't tear somebody else down when they're not around if I have a proper relationship with God. Because it's him I fear. You know, it doesn't say here, fear all men. It says, honor all men. It doesn't say here, fear the brotherhood. He says what? Love the brotherhood. The one I'm supposed to fear is the one that I can't get away with anything. You know, when your kids are small, you can have them fooled thinking you got eyes in the back of your head, right? How do you know that? I know everything. I see everything. And they get old enough and they realize, no, you don't. You forget a lot of things. <laughs> but God doesn't. The proper fear of God helps me in every relationship I have in life. 
And so right here in the middle here, of all of these things, he is coming to the place, how can I, how can I treat people correctly? How can I lay aside, when somebody hurts me, how can I lay aside all malice and guile? How can I live that way? That's impossible. I mean, they hurt me. How could I, how can I respond? How do you expect me to respond to somebody that's persecuting me? How can you expect me to respond to somebody that has done wrong to me? How do you expect me to respond to somebody that on purpose they meant to hurt me? Peter says, well, you got to lay all these things aside. He goes into everything, who you are and your identity in Christ and what Christ has done for you and how to behave. And then he says this, you can do it if you fear God. Your relationship with God is the most important relationship that you have, Christian. I am always a better husband when I'm right with God, always. I'm always a better dad when I'm right with God. My relationship with God has to be the number one priority. And then he gets into, in verse number 17, he gets into the relationships with servants. And this is, this at that time, most of them being scattered abroad, they were now working for people, right? They were doing things around their houses. They were helping or working for people. They were scattered so they didn't have a, a business or they, didn't, they, they, they were using their skills to, to work for someone. And he goes in, he talks about being a servant. And then he talks about being obedient or kind or, or dealing correctly with those that you're working for. And, and, he, and he words it so well. Look, look with me here if he says in verse number 18, be subject to your masters with all fear. Not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the froward. Don't just do right to those that treat you right. Those that don't even treat you right, you're supposed to be a good employee too. Now again, I won't ask you how many of you have complained about your boss. I want to ask you to raise your hand, especially if you work here. <laughs> I'm looking. If you complain about your boss, you know, human beings are not always going to make the right decision. Some may make, them on, make a bad decision on accident. Others may make a bad decision on purpose to hurt you. You know what he's telling us here? There are some masters or some employers that on purpose seek to hurt their employees. They know what the right thing to do is and they choose not to do it. They know what they're supposed to give and they choose not to give it. And Peter says, if that's how you're being treated, that you should stand your ground. No, what he says, what he says, you see it? Be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, those that treat you right, but also to the froward, those that are difficult to work for. Now listen, this is be realizing that you're a pilgrim and a stranger. God may have you at that place so that how you respond 
shows that person Christ. We've got to realize every single event in our life is to show others Christ. Every event. Even when somebody mistreats you on purpose, we're supposed to deal with them correctly so they see Jesus Christ in you. You can't go to work and fly off the handle. You can't go to work and, 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 and behave like a lost person. You can't lose your cool and, and, and have a bad testimony and, and, and it be their fault. And you've convinced yourself, I have to respond this way because that's how they deal with me. I've got to show them. I've got to respond this way. They frustrate me so bad. What, Paul, what Peter is saying is even when you're treated that way, your responsibility is still to show them Christ. Now that's tough. How many of you would say that's tough? I, I say it is. That's tough. But that's keeping the focus on you being a stranger and a pilgrim, living your life so that God's will is performed in you, or you thinking that life is about you and today and what you can get and what you deserve and what you didn't get and you get all frustrated in life and lose your testimony over something that's not even eternal. And I think a lot of Christians, if they're not careful, they get so bent out of shape over things that are not eternal and they lose the opportunity then to share with that person what is eternal because of how it made you feel. If someone wrongs you and you handle it properly, it gives you the opportunity to share Christ with that person. If you're wronged and you handle it like they handled it, you've ruined your testimony and potentially an opportunity to share Christ. Man, it's hard. You live in a world. Those in government, it seems like they're against you. You work in the world, and it seems like they're just about making money, and you're just a number. That's a tough world to live in. That's why Peter says, but you're not of this world. That's why it's tough. The best an unsaved person, the best an unsaved person is going to get is what they get in this world. This isn't the best we're going to get. And so we can't live our life trying to make it best in this world. We're to live our life for the eternal. Heaven is always what we have in view. Christ is what we always have in view. And pointing others to him is our goal. And if I have to go through a struggle, and that to be the, what gives me the opportunity to show someone Christ, then let me go through that struggle if somebody sees Christ in it. And so we... Tells, talks how the servant is supposed to handle things. And in verse number 19, and I, I'll need to be done here. Verse number 19, the Bible says this, for this is thankworthy. What's that word thankworthy mean? One of you real smart people tell us. What is it? Gracious, okay. Somebody else? Say it aloud. Commendable, gracious, commendable. Anything else? Consider it. Anything else? This is, those are great, great words. This is thankworthy. Listen to what he says. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrong, wrongfully. 
this is what God sees. This is what God sees, he's saying. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your fault, ye shall take it patiently? When it's your fault and you say, okay, I got this. That's mine. You ever see a basketball game when the, you know, the player fouls or, you know, he does something wrong. He's like, I got that one. That's mine. You're like, we know, buddy. We're watching the game. Like, what did that just? You're right. You ever see the kid get pushed down and they fall down and the guy that pushed him down, he tries to help back up? You say, hmm, something about that kid. He says, you know what God appreciates? You know what God commends? You know what God likes to see? You know what impresses God? You know what he's looking for in us? When you're wronged, you handle it right. Not when you're wrong and you get caught, you say, I'm sorry. What he likes, what he commends, what he's looking for is when you're wrong, it's not your fault, you didn't do anything wrong, and you say, I'll take this. Because when you take this, you are Christ-like. And if you read the rest of this chapter, he goes into now talking about Christ. He was bruised for your and my transgression. He went to the cross because of what you and I did. He became sin so that he could forgive your sin and my sin. God turned his back on his son so that you and I could be redeemed to God. When you, when you respond correctly, when it was not your fault, what Christ, what God says is, that's who I'm looking for because that looks like my son, Jesus Christ. Look with me, look with me and we'll be done. He says, for what glory is it when ye be buffeted for your faults? Ye shall take it patiently. But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently. This, this is acceptable to God. When you're persecuted because you're doing right, God likes to see that. Why? For even hereunto were ye called. What? That's what he called you to, he says. You mean to tell me I am called? My life should be lived looking for ways that when I'm wronged, I respond right? He says, that's why you're called. Why is that? Because Christ also suffered for us. When you respond correctly, when you're wronged, you are becoming like Christ. And what does God the Father want? He wants you to be Christ-like. His whole goal is to see you mature. Do you remember, do you remember that verse when Jesus said to Peter, in, uh, was, it, was it Luke? He said to Peter um, that, that, that um, Satan desireth to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for thee. Satan's desiring Peter to get you off track. But I've prayed for you. For what reason? What's the rest of that verse? Does anybody know? 
That when you are converted, strengthen the what? The brethren. You're able to help somebody else become what God wants them to become. You're, you're going to glorify God. And now here's Peter. What's Peter doing here in this, in this chapter, in this verse, in this book? He's strengthening the brethren, the brethren that are going through persecution, the brethren that is weak, the brother that is going through this suffering. Peter now, because Christ said, I've prayed for you. Why did you pray for me? Because Satan wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to get you off track. He wants to destroy your life. But he said, I've prayed for you. And when you're converted, strengthen the brother. Now we find Peter, he's doing exactly that. He's matured as as a Christian because he's handled suffering correctly and now he's watching the brethren go through suffering going through persecution and what's his goal in life to strengthen them so Jesus Christ is seen through them our lives are supposed to be lived so through every suffering every persecution every trial Christ is seen in me and that's what God's looking for how do I know if I'm pleasing to the Lord? Does he see Christ when he sees me? Obviously, I know from salvation perspective he does, but I mean the way we handle conflict, trials, persecution, suffering. How do we handle those things? We ought to handle them in such a way when God sees it, he's acceptable with what he sees. Go on now. Just finish this chapter. He's reading these verses. Who did, who did no sin, verse number 22. So we find Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. What steps? That he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, he revived not again. So when he was persecuted or talked about, he didn't talk back. When he was wronged, he didn't wrong back. He says, this is what I want you to be like. This is what I desire for you to behave like. This is what God is after in your life. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. You know what he knew? God was in control. All he was concerned with was this. Father, are you okay with what I'm doing? He wasn't worried about what somebody else was going to do or what somebody else was going to say. His concern was this, God, you're the judge. As long as I'm right with you, that's what matters. Who his own self bear our sin in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live under righteousness. We don't have to live like the lost because of what Christ has done for us. I can respond properly in suffering. I can respond properly in trials. I can behave like Christ because of what Christ has already done. And in verse number 25, for ye were as sheep going astray, but now are returned unto the shepherd and the bishop of your souls. You see that shepherd, and that bishop, they're capitalized. You know who that is? It's Christ. It's Christ. You're returned unto him. He cares for your soul. He cares who you are, what you've become, what you're becoming. 